Hey everyone, it's Michael. In this episode, I spoke with David Gill. David is a professor at the Duke University Marine Lab associated with Duke's Nichols School of the Environment. We talked about David's background in the NGO and consultancy worlds and his path to academia through a PhD at the University of the West Indies in Barbados, which was then followed by a postdoc at the National Social Ecological Synthesis Center, or CISINC, and a Smith Conservation Fellowship. We also discussed how David has navigated his interdisciplinary scholarly identity and his engagement with transdisciplinary research on marine management. Finally, we talked about a paper that David led last year in which he and his co-authors describe, among other things, the importance of looking at the heterogeneous impacts that conservation initiatives can have on local communities. This is the Finding Sustainability podcast. It's been nice to start to get to meet you, David, through this other set of Zoom calls we're having for this proposal. I had started to hear your name since you got to Duke. It was just like a year or two ago, or how long have you been there? Two years and a few days. Okay. It starts to add up, huh? I remember, I think it was like two weeks ago when someone sent me a note. I was a second year grad student. And it's just, it feels like I'm still, there's always like that part of you that remembers your previous identities. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you still feel like that postdoc, not actually knowing what you're doing on a day to day basis. <laughs> yeah. You know, the older you get, the more you realize that no one really knows what they're doing, you know, because everyone's kind of faking it until they make it. I wish they had told me that earlier. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, so you're at Duke. You're at the Nicholas School. It's the Nicholas School of the Environment. I never say the full name. Yeah, the Nicholas School of the Environment and in Beaufort, which is at the Marine Laboratory here. Yeah, the model has always reminded me of what Stanford does. They have like a marine lab over there too. I don't know how similar they are actually in function. The school has different divisions. And so the Marine Lab falls under the Marine Science and Conservation Division. Got it. And so you've been in Beaufort now for two years. Yeah, it's really nice. Definitely people are friendly here. It's a really strong, tight-knit community. I think what attracts me to the Marine Lab is just how supportive people are of each other. And it seemed real. During interviews, you know, you're not sure if it is actually real. But you're like, no, these people actually care about each other, the students, staff. And yeah, as a junior faculty member, that definitely was really attractive. Oh, that matters so much. Like being supported, feeling supported just makes all the difference, right? I feel like there's this idea that sometimes you think we grow out of the need to be mentored or have mentorship, et cetera. It's like, I don't think you ever really grow out of that. You always need to have someone helping you. So before we dive a bit more into your time at Duke, I'd love to, as they say in podcasts speak, take a step back or take a couple steps back. So I'm aware of a little bit of your professional history that before this, you spent some time at the National Social Environmental Synthesis Center as a postdoc, I believe, which I've spent some time at. I think most people have spent a little bit of time there in our field. And then you were a Smith Fellow. And is that through the Society for Conservation Biology? I've heard of that program. Yeah. Yeah. The David H. Smith Conservation Fellowship. Okay. And so before that, you got a PhD in the University of the West Indies in 2014, I understand. We're reaching the limit of what I was able to find online. (laughs) But David, I'd love to hear more about what brought you even to that point, more about why did you get a PhD in the first place? Like what kind of led you in your life formally or informally to say, okay, this is kind of the next step for me. Are you from Barbados? Do I have that right? Yeah, I'm from Barbados. Okay. Yeah, I would say that my decision to do a PhD is not the one that anyone else should ever do. <laughs> okay. So I was definitely one of those kids growing up that hated school. 
and couldn't wait to get out of school. <laughs> yeah. But got hooked on those Jack Cousteau documentaries, unfortunately. Okay. Got interested in marine biology and my undergrad at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's a little different. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> what made you think you wanted to go there way back when? Oh, as I said, I don't have the career path to follow. I finished what we have called secondary school back home, community college, and I was too late to apply for university. So I went home on Yahoo and Googled Marine Biology Canada, and two universities showed up, UBC and Dalhousie, and only Dalhousie responded. <laughs> okay. All right. So how was that going up north? It was good. Definitely a whole different ecosystem in terms of learning about marine biology and fish species there. But it was only when I came back home jobless that I got a small position at an NGO that did a lot of work engaging with the community and outreach and education. I started to realize that, ah, you know what, this cool stuff actually comes in handy. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So you're about 22 at this point? Yeah. I went on to do my master's in natural resource management and that program back home in the Center for Resource Management and Environmental Studies at University of West Indies. And that program is really applied. It's where we have people from the field coming in and giving lectures. All the professors and lecturers are doing work locally, internationally, not just research. So that program was really fruitful for our career. And so graduated from there. And then it was no longer just me that was jobless, but a group of us that were jobless. So we said, hey, let's form an environmental consultancy. And just take up a lot of these jobs that the department don't have the capacity to handle. And so we formed a consulting company and was doing that for a couple of years. And then we were doing anything that they asked us to do from monitoring or doing baseline assessments of reef habitats before projects move in all the way through to doing noise and traffic studies. (laughs) You did everything. But it wasn't until the global economic crisis hit and a lot of the jobs dried up that at the same time, one of my old professors said, hey, there's a PhD opportunity, funded opportunity to work on a large European Union funded project. And I think you should apply. And so with work drying up and a chance to do a PhD, I thought, well, it's a, a project that's already outlined. I'm already doing consulting work where they need deliverables, they need reports, they need information compiled. Why can't I just imagine this is a three, four-year consulting job? And so I did. And that's <laughs> how I ended up doing my PhD. All right. Did you like being in the NGO space? Were you enjoying some of that work? Yeah. It was a small NGO. Number of paid employees was one. It was me. but it was a chance to network with government practitioners who are doing work in the field. There are community organizations that are trying to make a difference, doing summer camp work, just being able to get ideas from people in a community and then trying to see how far we can go getting them implemented on the ground. We were successful in some, others not as much, but it definitely jump-started my career, I would say. Okay. So is that kind of hard to leave behind in some ways when you started the PhD? Yeah. Yeah. And even consulting was also hard to leave behind, but definitely that as well, I think 
in its own weird way was really helpful for being able to boost confidence to pick up a topic and research and to go at it. And so the University of West Indies is in Barbados or is it somewhere else? They have a campus, three main campuses. There are other satellites in Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica. So this was a three-year program for you in the PhD? Yes, roughly three, three and a half, sort of the European model okay. where you do a master's and then PhD. Right. So had European funding. Is that what you said? Yeah. And this professor, did they become your advisor? Yeah. Professor Oxenford, she was an amazing advisor. My PhD was looking at the economic value of quarry fish to diet tourism and fishing industry. And so she, as a fisheries ecologist, and then my other advisor was an economist, a resource economist. It was a great mix to be able to work together with both of them. I always think this question is kind of funny. I'm not convinced that knowing what someone got a PhD in is always that informative. I mean, my PhD is in public affairs, which just tells you nothing. I'm interested in public affairs, but I've always been. So what is it? That said, what is your PhD formally in? Formally, it's in natural resource management. Okay. Focus on resource economics. So a little more social science-y if we want to start categorizing things? Yeah. It was actually during my master's where I made the switch from natural to social it was not intentional. It was actually, I was tricked into it. <laughs> All right. At which stage? During your master's? Yep. So my master's research project, which I was sold on, was sailing throughout the Grenadine Islands on a catamaran and ground truthing satellite data. So that means just sailing on a catamaran for a couple of weeks, jumping into water, doing diving every day. And that was going to be my master's research. That sounds wonderful from here, was it? But then the week before we left, we found out that the PhD student we were going to be working with, she had a change in her research topic. And so instead, we were going to be interviewing hundreds of fishermen. Ah, okay. <laughs> a little bit different. <laughs> was that like a real bifurcation for you? I mean, that really just led you down an entirely different path? It did, yeah. Oh, well. I definitely was, by all means, into reef ecology, and that was all I was interested in. And all this confusing stuff about governance and all these weird People. words meant nothing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then having conversations with all these fishers and hearing about their lives and how the changing the environment affects them. And you know, seeing what they're doing, eating with them and hanging out with them at the beach it sort of opens your eyes to the other, that there is this huge connection and reliance and people are being really severely impacted by changes in the environment and the decisions that are made from others on how to protect it. So that for me, and then that continued into my PhD research, that definitely was a game changer. Okay. I mean, was that initial work for your master's, was there some ethnographic elements? Were you using questionnaires? I don't know. This is just strict surveys, creating a profile of use and dependency on, on marine resources. Okay. It's very interesting, David. I would say, I don't know what percentage of the guests on this podcast have this experience, but it's very common for them to have started in ecology and then made a switch at some point. Yeah, most definitely. So that gives you a nice interdisciplinary background that I would imagine that your previous intellectual life is still part of your current professional identity. Yeah, yeah, I still try to hold on to as much reef ecology as I can. <laughs> yeah. Definitely trying to keep up in the literature and collaborate with other reef ecologists, but 
I guess when you do get to the stage where you're pulled a bit into a box, yeah, and you have to make that choice to say, well, as much as I am in love with reef ecology and all that's involved in that, I can't say that I can call myself a reef ecologist anymore. Right. Do you chafe at that? Because I've also talked to people a lot about like interdisciplinarity on this program and we have. And I think there are different views on what it means. There's this idea of undisciplinarity, which is just no disciplines and we're all just kind of holding hands somehow. The last guest we had, John Parker, who's at the National Science Foundation, said he actually thinks you can't really do anything without a discipline. You need humans in groups to like be working together. And that might create a challenge, but ultimately there's no other, like there's no model of social organization without some kind of group of people. Yeah, and I think my time at Succinct really brought this out because we would have this tradition that whenever there was guests, we'd have a little informal gathering and us postdocs would introduce ourselves and others would say, hi, my name is X, I am a this. <laughs> hi, my name is Y and I am a, a that. And when I reached me, I was like, uh, <laughs> I'm David and I'm not sure what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, so you felt that way after your PhD as well. Yeah. I think what, again, at Sync and seeing the different groups who come together and how people form teams and what a successful research team looks like, you do see the balance where the teams are looking for those specialists. They need an economist, they need an oceanographer, they need this. But there's then that person who sort of works across disciplines as sort of like a bridging actor who can speak oceanography and understands the policy side of it. And so I actually feel more comfortable hovering in that space where I would by no means say that I understand much of the deep theory, social science theory, or are up to speed on the latest in reef ecology, being able to understand how the two connect, playing that bridging role in research as well as research groups. So it is a plus in that you do understand, but it is a minus in that when people need an economist or they need this or that, they don't look to you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You're less legible to people. So that's very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I've heard this term before. I think it's a really important term in our own field, right? This idea of a boundary actor, a bridging actor as someone who can connect different groups and facilitate environmental governance at a larger scale, et cetera. I mean, that's been talked about a lot. I've enjoyed increasingly this kind of reflexive turn that I've experienced. I've learned that term from anthropology, which apparently had its own kind of reflexive turn several decades ago, where anthropologists going to different communities started to think, well, we should think about our positions and our positionality here and think about what is my identity here. It's not as this kind of outside observer exactly, because by engaging with these communities, I am changing them. So that's felt really healthy to me to take that conceptually and emotionally on board. So you think about yourself as like a bridging or boundary actor, it sounds like in this way. Yeah, in the sense that balancing, it is a trade-off, not being able to be a resource or um, to know a certain topic as deeply as others, but definitely seeing how when we, yeah, the social and ecological aspects of coral reef governance, being able to put the two together, I think is, is really important. Is part of the challenge here a kind of a psychological one of not being able to be highlighted as like the person for a certain field, right? So you're not like, oh, we need an economist, right? Like, let's talk to Michael or David. It's, yeah. <laughs> is that kind of a hump to get over in your experience? It is. It is definitely. 
yeah, you do have these identity issues because everyone wants to know what to label you as. It comes up even more important when you, you get to tenure. <laughs> yeah. You do have some kind of channel identity or clear where, which discipline do we put you? Yeah. So it's definitely, I think, as we train more interdisciplinary scientists, I think it is something that I have seen more and more in, in students as well, where they do feel passionate that their work aligns in this discipline, but they are trained over here on their certificate says that there's something else. So it's definitely something that we are going to have to address increasingly so with future students. Sure, yeah. Getting back to your PhD for a second, what did you do for the PhD project for those three years? So that involved first doing lots of surveys with fishers from around different sites in the Caribbean and dive operators and divers to get a sense of their dependency on coral reefs and how changes in coral reefs could affect the economic value and other benefits that they derive from coral reefs. Definitely was able to put some ecology in use to come up with credible scenarios for the future, what changes could happen in coral reefs, but most of it was using some economic evaluation approaches to see how people value different attributes of coral reef fish. And then there's a change in value then translate to that in terms of economic value. Okay. There's some interdisciplinarity there as well. Several things now to move forward with here. One is I wanted to kind of get that nugget and then so I guess we'll return to that. But this again, this idea of boundary or bridging actor, because you were spending time in the NGO world and then you did your PhD and then it was succinct before the Smith Fellowship or the other way around? Yeah, succinct before the Smith. Okay. And so the Smith is again to me about I mean, I associate the field of conservation biology, which I associate with the Smith Fellowship, as being a rather applied field. Do you feel yourself as being a kind of bridging actor also between kind of the more theory side of things and the practice side of things? Because now you're an academic, but you've got some of this background. How did that play out in the Smith Fellowship that you did? So definitely my training, even up through the PhD, was very, very applied. And then going into at my time at Sink, I actually had sort of three hats because I was working on a WWF project as opposed to as a postdoc coming in with some basic science question or even applied science question. WWF had this project to understand the impacts of marine protected areas. They needed a postdoc to do this work to inform some of their work on the ground. So definitely even all the way through my career, it's been working with NGOs, governments, private sector, and so definitely carrying on now into academic life as a faculty, I still do it. Most of my work is partnering with NGOs. Why do you do it? Because I believe that science needs to be used to better society through improvements in the environment, as well as meeting the needs of those that depend on it. And so it's, as I mentioned before, all the way from hanging out on the beaches with fishers on small islands in the Caribbean, definitely see how changes in the environment do affect people. And decisions that are being made are about how they can use and basically live their lives. Is that based on credible science or is that just based on hearsay? 
what is the quality of evidence on choosing this policy versus another? The benefits that we think that they'll provide and those benefits outweigh the social costs. So for sure, a lot of the ethos in, in what I do is how can this work better inform something that's happening on the ground? Okay. I mean, I completely agree with all of that. I mean, it's always great to hear when someone's doing work like this and has a set of values. Is that a part of the reason why you were attracted to the job at the Nicholas School? It was definitely one of the biggest reasons. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I actually was not really thinking that my life was going to be an academic. I definitely saw each step along the way was just to continue to better skills, experience to be able to then work in an NGO or to continue consulting or some other government or other position. But with the Nicholas School and some of the other researchers there, seeing that how they embed their research in community NGOs in Mexico or other work that they're doing locally in this community. If I'm going to be in academia, this is the way to do it for me. That's terrific. So it's a strong norm there, you would say, to do that kind of work? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And I think it's sad to say that the hurricanes that have passed through and a lot of the changes that have happened locally here in Beaufort has even made that connection even stronger. How can the work that's being done in the Marine Lab better help and support this the wider community here in eastern North Carolina? Oh, that's really interesting. So there's some local research and engagement that's also happening now? Yeah. Have you been involved in any of that? Directly, not yet. I'm getting my bearings, but definitely I'm exploring ways to connect with others who have started a lot of the community engagement work, looking at how people are responding to hurricanes and risks. And we were recently supported with a joint university initiative that's going to be supporting work within a couple of counties in eastern North Carolina. So it sounds like there's a consistent interest on your part on the effects of different interventions on folks. And that was also something you sent me this paper that we might talk about now for the listeners post the reference to that in the show notes. But that's one of the things I saw in the annual reviews paper as well is this interest in trying to unpack really to a large degree the heterogeneity of impacts that like an intervention like an MPA, et cetera, would have. And actually in our discussions for this potential proposal that's come out as well is we're seeing an intervention as a disturbance. Could you talk to me about how we can see a policy intervention as a disturbance? In this review, a lot of it came out of the idea that we see that marine conservation is expanding exponentially around the world. And so you would expect that people influenced by marine conservation will also increase. And so what does that mean in terms of the effects on coastal communities? Now, we know that most of the research previously was just looking at the ecological effects and now recognizing, yeah, we need to consider social impacts. But a lot of that work has been in the aggregate. So, yes, this intervention benefits the people. The people, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the people, singular. So this research then thought, well, why don't we take it to the next level of understanding how impacts vary? But then we got stumped at and realized that, hey, there's many ways that we can look at heterogeneity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the distribution, who benefits or who doesn't benefit, is also the magnitude. Is it also the directionality of it? All these different aspects of heterogeneity 
that we should look at when we talk about how people are differentially affected by an intervention. David, I think some listeners won't know what you mean by directionality. Could you describe that? Positive, negative. Oh, okay. Just whether it's good or bad. Did it lead to an increase in wealth while at the same time decreasing cultural attachment to the resources? So I think when thinking about conservation of the disturbance got into when we were thinking about the why. Why do we see some synergies between certain aspects of human well-being that are affected? Or why do we see trade-offs? And a lot of it seems to come through with the fact that conservation, particularly MPAs, and that was the most common intervention in the literature, no surprise there, is that it reallocates rights and access to resources. As soon as you start shuffling around access to resources, then those who end up with the rights, we see cascading benefits to other aspects of their well-being. Right. With a, a loss in those rights, that's where we see then the declines in well-being or the shifts call, result in conflicts. And so then it started to fall into the vulnerability framework, which looks at exposure and adaptive capacity and sensitivity. So who are most exposed to conservation interventions, both in terms of benefits, not saying that conservation is bad, but the costs and benefits, who are more exposed to those and how coastal communities are definitely a hotspot, particularly in the developing world. And then when you think about sensitivity, well, those who are most strongly dependent on resources, those are the ones that are most sensitive to change, both in the conditions as well as access and rights, as opposed to others. We see cases where an intervention happened, the farmers, they were fine, but the fishers, they were the ones that were most affected. And then when you think about capacity, that's where it came to, well, who has the capacity to adapt to these new norms? Do you have a boat that's big enough to go outside of the North Lake area, as well as all the way through to the capacity to benefit? Where those in the community who spoke English, who right. had a level of education to benefit from the associated development project. Those are the ones who seem to benefit. So yeah, it seems from what we saw in the review, we saw yeah, this idea that vulnerability framework of exposure, adaptive capacity, and as well as sensitivity sort of aligns with explaining some of the reasons why we see the heterogeneity in impact. I mean, so not to make a connection to COVID, even though it feels inevitable in any conversation, part of the discourse there has been that it is a disturbance and it is disproportionately affecting folks with less resources who are historically marginalized more than other folks. And so I've started to feel like whatever happens, it's going to be the people with more capital, more resources, more wealth who are going to be able to do better. And sometimes... You know, how much do we worry about an intervention coming in and kind of helping the people that don't need the help as much? Because I feel like we've seen this. I was just engaging with collaborators of mine in South Africa where there's these livestock auctions where they're trying to subsidize rotational grazing in these rangelands. But of course, they're only helping folks with livestock. And that actually happens to be mostly men. And so how much do we worry about the possibility of this intervention layering on and even reinforcing like historical inequities. Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head. The other aspect sort of theme that came out of research is that whoever has the power to influence how those resource rights are allocated, access, 
who has the power to shape the intervention. And those are the ones that you'd be normally see benefiting and sometimes at the cost to those that are marginalized. And so working together with a few colleagues to talk about some of the sort of the synergistic impacts. We're putting together a concept paper of coastal communities where we do see the effects of climate. And we know from the climate literature that it is those groups, the marginalized groups that tend to bear more of the brunt from climate impacts and then other forms of pressures and exposure and then conservation as well. So when we design interventions, are we just designing them to benefit those who are easier to access, who have more influence over the decision? The idea of easy access too, right? People who are more legible and reachable are going to be the people that are more empowered. And so, I mean, I've struggled with this in the work that I've briefly mentioned you in the Dominican Republic. We've interviewed a lot of Dominicans. We've not interviewed any Haitians yet. And Haitians tend to be poor and more marginalized than the average Dominican. Yeah, and even if community-based projects, and that actually was one of the focus in this paper, it's usually the head of the clans or the community that the NGO or the government goes to and works with. And then sometimes whatever ethnic group that the head or the dominant group, they're the ones who shape the intervention. What does that mean to the marginalized groups or in some cases migrants as well? or usually the ones who are, don't have a voice in, in these conversations. So it is a huge challenge. I think in this work, we are going to be talking about the need to address the root drivers of these inequalities if we want to build vulnerability, for sure. Right. Yeah, so you started to answer an unfair question that I wanted to ask, which is, you know, what do we do about this? It's about proximate symptoms versus underlying drivers of these inequalities. Yes, definitely. Because even in climate adaptation or climate mitigation measures, are they being designed in such a way that supports the majority or the dominant? Or is there certain groups that we should ensure that they have a voice in? Are we putting up the seawalls, protecting the private property, and then at least the poor communities to get their land washed away down shore? David, do you find yourself confronting this? I mean, because, you know, part of the work you're talking about is a part of this movement towards socializing conservation biology, right? There's this idea of conservation social science. And I know you've worked with some folks like Conservation International, et cetera, that are social scientists working for these bingos. How do you feel about that movement and where it is? Is it still a challenge to convince a lot of folks that we need to be thinking about social outcomes in conservation? And for example, equalities? Yeah, it is a challenge. We have made a lot of progress, I would say. Definitely both in terms of academia and we've seen a lot more interdisciplinary work. In this review, we definitely see a sharp uptake in studies that look at social impacts of conservation interventions. We see in more qualifiers added to text in international goals and agreements, whereas this target and it's equitably managed um, somewhere as a subclause. I guess it's a start, yeah. <laughs> I was getting there. And as you know, definitely any kind of structural or cultural change takes decades. It's daunting, yeah. <laughs> but I think the point we do need to step beyond is that where we do prescribe these conservation policies and actions and say, yeah, in this study somewhere, the people benefited. So we know it's great. When us annoying social scientists say, well, it actually depends. <laughs> Perceptions matter too, like all of these fuzzy things. Yeah, the fuzzy that a lot of people don't want to engage with and 
course, I understand. I didn't want to engage with it back in the day because I saw the urgency and the need for change. But definitely to be able to, and, and I think a lot of the global movement that is happening about the need for increased diverse voices and dealing with structural inequalities, I think we are going to start to make that change, recognize that, hey, you can't silo your research anymore. It's not going to work. There's still a long way to go, but I think starting to make that change. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. I feel like part of the discussion so far has been, I might be projecting this, but I'm hearing kind of a discussion of winners and losers, and some people are going to do better, some people do worse. But I also remember seeing in that paper a brief discussion of kind of going beyond winners and losers. So could you talk about that and why you think that perspective is important? That comes when you try to neatly categorize the data and you say that, well, okay, we have these two groups of fishers or talk about the men and the women, how they were differentially affected by this policy. And you realize that, yep, definitely one group. We saw an increase in their economic well-being. They both are having more rights to the resource or it's said that implicitly. But then that group also then experienced increased conflict with the other group. And so while this group did enjoy these rights and be able to access the resource and they saw an, maybe even an increase in fish catch, they also then experienced more conflict and the cohesion between different communities started to erode. And so they recognized that, yeah, in a lot of these cases, there were very few observations of these sort of universal winners and universal losers. Most of the, when we do dig into the nuance in the text, and sometimes it's not explicitly stated in the paper, but you have to kind of read, sort of dig into it, that more so there are both synergies, simultaneous synergies and trade-offs that are happening both between groups as well as within groups. That makes sense. I mean, it does seem to pose a challenge for comparability, right? Like once you start to unpack all of these seemingly endless complexities of a case, there's synergies, there's winners who are also losers, et cetera. How do you then take that and say, okay, well, what can we learn from this case and generalize it to something else? Yeah, the generalizability is always a challenge. But I can say what it would mean for sort of the policy is that this is where values come into play and, and perceptions and what are the aspirations. And there are some groups who are willing to make the sacrifice in terms of conflict and cohesion with other group to improve their economic well-being or vice versa. They're willing to compromise their short-term economic well-being in order to maintain social cohesion with other groups. And so making these trade-offs explicit, I think, is important. We can't hide behind these win-wins and trying to sell win-wins to communities without making the trade-offs explicit. So to ensure that there is this informed choices that is happening. And so David, something else you've mentioned in this interview, and it's also mentioned in the paper, is kind of impact evaluation, causal inference, call it what you want it. And I know that it's become much more popular to, you know, if you can do like controlled before and after, et cetera, these kind of quasi-experimental designs are seen in some fields as being I know that there's also a movement within conservation biology towards this, seen as kind of the gold standard for causal inference, right? We control for everything, and if we can control for it statistically, that's fine, but if we can control for it experimentally, even better. Random sampling is nice, but let's get some random assignment in there. What is your feeling on the best way to, and by best, I mean also most feasible, way to actually 
evaluate the impact of these interventions. Because one of the main challenges I hear, right, and this was actually, I'm forgetting the authors who said this, but it was in response to the recent Nobel Prizes in economics, right, for this exact approach in development economics. And one of their responses was, well, it's actually kind of hard to do random assignment for like marine protected areas. The unit of analysis here is not a person, it's a whole system. And that just makes so much of that approach just totally infeasible. So when you think about impact evaluation, like, do you think about more qualitative stuff? Do you think about just a really good survey instrument to get at people's perceptions of change and cause? Or how do you think about it? Yeah, I would say that definitely if we wanted the perfect impact evaluation, we would have to basically bomb the ocean to devoid it of all life, make it completely homogenous, <laughs> randomly assign MPAs, and then watch it recover and then see if the MPAs made a difference. <laughs> that sounds tricky. <laughs> yeah. And impact evaluation is hard and it is expensive. And I think we had the discussion about this amongst the authors when we were writing the section up. And that was actually some of the reviewer feedback talking about how difficult it is to do these rigorous approaches where you do try to control for all these factors. But I would say it depends on the scale of the intervention and who needs to know this information. Is this a project that is well-known, um, have the impacts that we are seeing what we want to see it? Or is this something new and experimental and that the cost of getting it wrong can be pretty severe? I would say that would be sort of the cost and benefits of information. I would say it's a huge factor there. But I think going into the future, and this is part of the work that we're trying to do in our lab, is to try to figure out how to use mixed methods approaches even where we know that we can't randomly assign MPAs and often it's too late to do baseline monitoring in many of these locations. But how can we draw on some of the participatory and qualitative approaches to understand, create the counterfactual, what conditions would have been like here, and then mix that with other observation data to then see if we can tell the story. But essentially, to tell the story, you would have to do a good job of one, accounting for other drivers of change and then to account for the biases as to why this invention is happening here and right now. And so just doing as good a job as you can on those two things, I think, will get us way beyond where a lot of our current work is right now. I mean, it sounds like part of what you're talking about requires a long-term investment in a particular site. Yeah. And for interventions who are working at the scale of the decadal scale or in terms of the size of the investment, I think it's worthwhile to then inform other policies for replication. But definitely for a lot of other smaller interventions, it may not be feasible to do the more quantitative approaches, but what are some of the qualitative methods that we can prove? And Paul Ferraro says the counterfactual thinking in our work to see what the true impacts are. I think Paul Ferraro might have been one of the co-authors on, I'm thinking of this, there's a special issue in world development written in response to the Nobel Prize. And I think he might have been a co-author on the paper I was thinking of where they said, hey, it's a little different when your unit of analysis is a marine protected area than, you know, a farmer. Yeah, yeah, I know. So David, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Are you engaged in long-term fieldwork in a particular place in Barbados or somewhere else to kind of get some of these things done? Yeah, so coming out of working with the folks in WWF, started to form relationships with researchers in Indonesia, where they actually had a project that had that scale 
to implement an impact evaluation framework to look at social and ecological changes and impacts over time of the network of marine protected areas. And so the project is being led by Universitas Papua in Eastern Indonesia. So we're working with them to answer some of these big questions for the impacts of MPAs, but also to work with them to develop the capacity to answer what are the locally relevant questions as well. So what I envision a lot of the work that folks in my lab are going to be doing is helping to build the capacity on the ground where the science is happening. And so partnering with local scientists and, and local practitioners to develop the research capacity or other skills needed to answer relevant questions. Well, it sounds transdisciplinary, like in a very good way. Yeah, and part of it also in the Caribbean, more on an invitation basis, <laughs> where it is that either the government needs help processing their fisheries data to answer questions for their upcoming spatial policy planning. How can we assist them? That's sort of the other stream of where I'm seeing our research going and hopefully get to the stage where we are democratizing some of the science and some of this work and answering salient questions, I would say for sure. Being more on the demand side, demand-driven research. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree, David. And again, it's so nice to hear. I felt this way for a while that, you know, in academia, we have all of these really great brains and we should, you know, why not help folks? I mean, I don't know if it needs to be in some ways more complicated than that. Okay, so you're working in there for a while. This is a project you started since coming to Duke? The project has started since 2010, but I was brought in recently. So I'm one of the latecomers to the game. And just, as I said, trying to figure out a way to use the expertise and the resources that we have here to answer some questions. Exactly. And so what courses are you teaching at the Nicholas School? Or how has your teaching side of your life been? Obviously, a global pandemic has sort of shuffled things around. I imagine. But so far, I am teaching a course on marine protected areas, trying to sort of synthesize some of the important info that students might need to know for monitoring and, and management. And at the Nicholas School, we do have a professional master's program. I think a lot of my courses will attract those students. This is the second year that I taught it, and definitely those who are going into NGOs or other jobs, they said, hey, yeah, this is really useful. And we were able to use this information for this project and this work. And the other courses that I would be working on are going to be co-developed. I would say those are TBD for future work, but others are seminars. I'm particularly interested in building up an evidence space. What is the evidence on the social and ecological effects of conservation interventions? So working with Dr. Lisa Campbell and Brian Silliman. We do this monster pull of the literature of over 100,000 studies or so. Oh my goodness. We, <laughs> yeah, can we take off chunks at a time to then understand what is the state of evidence? Dr. Samantha Chang on some of the machine learning methods to screen articles to be able to create evidence maps to see, okay, well, here's where a lot of literature is focusing on, and here are the glaring gaps. With respect to what exactly, David? Like gaps in our knowledge about what? The effects of different types of marine conservation interventions, from restoration to institution building, and their social and ecological outcomes. I was also a latecomer to this project, but um, working with WWF because they implement many of these policies. And so what is the state of science on the effects of these different types of interventions that they're investing a lot of money in? Sure. 
Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, I haven't worked with a large NGO, although in South Africa, we've engaged with Conservation South Africa a bit. Before I got engaged with any NGO folks, I just assumed that they had like a whole department where they were measuring everything about what they were doing and how well it was going. And I've kind of been consistently surprised that that's still a frontier is actually figuring out like how well we're doing with all the things that we are doing. Yeah, I think over the past few years, well, the large NGOs do have the capacity to try to address this question. And so when I was working with folks at Conservation International and WWF, they are seeing the need to invest in impact evaluation for their interventions. But then again, for the small NGOs, these community-led organizations who don't have the capacity to do that, how can we support them in closing the loop on their sort of monitoring and evaluation and learning cycles to do better work on the ground? Yeah, it's like, how can we learn together, right? Okay, David. I mean, so you mentioned a little bit the COVID pandemic changing things for you as it's kind of changing things for all of us. What do you see the next couple of years looking like for you moving forward? Like, are you coping all right with everything that's happening? And with other guests in the last month, we've actually started with this question of just like, hey, how's it going? Right? Like, how are you managing things? So I'll ask you that now. Just like, how has it been, you know, in the last couple of months? And how do you kind of view it moving forward for you? I can honestly say that my research has come to almost a halt during the height of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm trying to take care of family and learning Google Classroom and (laughs) submitting homework online. For sure, that has taken priority over these past few months. But now coming out of it and as research is starting to slowly trickle to the start again, I think definitely the pandemic has changed a lot of things in terms of the work we can do. I would say definitely on the privileged side to be able to continue to work at home for part of the day (laughs) and to work on data synthesis projects where I don't need to go into the field. You've got 100,000 documents. You're going to be busy for a while. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of work to keep us busy for a while. And I know that there are some people in the field that don't respect you unless you have dirt under your fingernails or you've gotten a tropical disease from doing an ethnography. But perhaps during this stage is where we do more synthesis work, see, hey, what is out there and get a better sense of where the field is at so that when we are able to go out in the field, we do it differently. We do it from a more informed standpoint, both in terms of what has been done and then perhaps with a better listening ear to see, well, what needs to be done. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel important to think, okay, in the midst of the challenges and it feels like the challenges have been kind of piling on. You know, what can we learn from everything that's happening as opposed to just kind of shutting down out of despair? I never know in these interviews how much I want to get into that fun space, honestly. But has that been important to you thinking about like, okay, like what can we learn from this so that when things are better, how do we get them better, et cetera? I really hope what we get out of this is empathy. Because as we talked about how things like this widen the inequality gap, even in our work, it is widening the inequality gap where you see those who don't have as many family commitments compared to those who do in terms of their publishing rate, or especially for women and others who usually bear an equal burden. They're the ones who have to deal with a lot more. And so hopefully we can learn, that, hey, we're not on level playing field. And how do we address this going forward? Definitely for me and Failing miserably at many things (laughs) over these past few months, I would say definitely having gone through the struggle myself, hopefully myself, I would change how I do research and for students as well, because a lot of them are 
dealing with a whole bunch of stressors right now. And so how can we be better mentors and, and better listeners and be able to support students during this time? Yeah. Thanks, David. That was very well put. I strongly agree. One thing I've started to say, which sounds kind of flippant, but it's like, how do we do more than nothing? Yeah. Because it turns out it's pretty easy to do nothing a lot of the time. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is very easy to do nothing. Definitely, I hope with the global pandemic, with addressing the needs to structural inequalities, as we can see all the way from structural racism in the U.S. to decolonization all around the world. Now is the time for us to pivot and to be able to see, now that we have a better sense of the problem, let's do better going forward, for sure. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is part of a larger project known as the Environmental Social Science Network. You can find us at essnetwork.net. There you'll find information about the podcast and other projects that we're working on, and you can contact us with any ideas about any of these projects. If you have an idea for who would be a good guest for the show, or you think you'd be a good guest for the show yourself, or if you just want to get involved in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out. 